Welcome to the ASHP Advantage Podcast, engaging the experts on ASHP Official, featuring conversations with top-level practitioners about the latest issues in pharmacy and healthcare. Thank you for joining us in this episode of Engaging the Experts, where we sit down with content matter experts and discuss what is currently top of mind in the world of pharmacy. My name is Dr. Kop Kasava, and I'll be your host today. I am the Director of Pharmacy for Auburn Community Hospital in Auburn, New York, and today I'll be talking with Dr. Mona Downs, a psychiatric clinical pharmacy specialist at Parkland Hospital in Dallas, Texas. We are all faculty for an educational initiative titled New Approaches to Managing Acute Agitation in the Hospital Setting that is supported by an educational grant from BioXL Therapeutics Incorporated. This podcast is for informational purposes and not approved for continuing education credit. Additional information is available at elearning.ashp.org. Thank you for joining us today, and we will let Dr. Downs get us started. Yes, thank you so much. I'm very excited today to be here and to be talking about a topic that I think maybe not a lot of people know about, but definitely are impacted by, especially in healthcare. Um, agitation, what's kind of interesting about it is that it's not extremely well-defined. When we look at like literature, guidelines, different studies do call it different things, and it can encompass quite a few different behaviors. So I think it might be a good place to start if we talk a little bit about what is agitation and you know what all it encompasses and how it can impact us in the settings that we practice in. So if you look at guidelines, there aren't too many out there. But one good one is the beta guidelines that talk about managing agitation. Even they don't have a very kind of concise definition. So I kind of take my definition from multiple sources on what could be considered agitation. And the one I really like comes actually from the DSM where they say it's excessive motor activity associated with a feeling of inner tension. So basically, it's an inner feeling that is outwardly expressed where a patient may look as sometimes innocuous in in our mindset as a little bit irritable. Maybe they're just restless, but that is one kind of behavior associated with agitation. But then it could also run the gamut and then um, lead to the extreme behavior of violence or even prior to violence, yelling, threatening behaviors and things like that. So just a reminder that if you are uncomfortable or if you're treating a patient who's even more on the beginning sides of agitation where they're they're starting to escalate, they're starting to get more and more irritable or not listening to a direction and things like that, that is considered agitation. It's just a lower severity of agitation. And we also should remember that being disrespected or um, demeaning talk or patients maybe saying things that we think are maybe a little threatening, but not to the point where you're feeling threatened, those are agitation too. And that's something that, you know, in my hospital setting, we actually, when we rolled out education on agitation, we had to really hit that point home to nurses because they think a lot of healthcare staff are just kind of used to being maybe not treated the best, right? So remembering that and also that prevalence of agitation in our world is not extremely well-defined either, but you know, if you're looking for numbers, they often look at patients who have delirium or dementia. So that is very high prevalence, up to 80, 90% of patients with dementia at some point will present with agitation. But when I was looking for data on this in my original 
deep dive back when I helped start our initiative on agitation, it was very hard to find that information. The kind of estimation is that it can vary quite a bit, but maybe around 10 to 25% of patients with psychiatric illness will present some sort of agitation. And as you may expect, folks with underlying psychiatric issues do tend to have a higher incidence of coming in with an agitation episode, which as we talk more through this, that can play into kind of how we treat these patients, what medication choices that we use, and uh, that kind of thing. And, and lastly, just knowing that when we, like I kind of mentioned, when we work in healthcare, we are at increased risk, right? There's different things out there, but right now, one big thing that people are focusing on is workplace violence. And with good reason, it's definitely something that I think, again, we've kind of gotten used to working in our field, but that certainly is not something we should be exposed to on a daily basis, as some of us are. It's estimated that of those assaults that happen at work, 75% are in our healthcare field. And people who work in healthcare are estimated to have four times more likely to need time off due to some sort of workplace violence episode. So it is costing us as providers, as uh, patient care folks, as well as our, our healthcare systems in general. And then, of course, if you work in psychiatry, you probably well know that we're, we are at increased risk. And I group myself in there because I work in the psychiatric unit here at my hospital, as well as psych ER and other places. And so, as you might expect, there's an increased risk. And up to 99% of people who work in psychiatry have been verbally assaulted. And I would probably argue that might actually be more like 100%, just remembering that even getting yelled at, you know, is considered agitation. So that's kind of what we're looking at when we talk about what it, defining it. So let's talk a little bit, Dr. Casabar, if you can kind of introduce us into, you know, how do you see agitation impacting hospital staff? Certainly. And I would just add to a couple of the points in the data that I was looking at, you know, again, agitation not be very well defined. And some of the psychiatric things they predict with like Wu and colleagues showed up to 25% of the folks with schizophrenia experience agitation, about 20 to 21% of the folks with bipolar disorders can show some agitation. Of those patients, they can have an average of about 10 to 12 episodes per year, which equates to about 40 million agitation episodes just in the schizophrenic and bipolar population. So uh, very high prevalence there. As we all know, COVID definitely exposed a lot of issues with uh, employee morale and all that stuff, but agitation plays in on this. And, uh, you know, as we look at these situations in overcrowded EDs and very tight psych units where people are waiting to get in, agitation can become an issue because a lot of the things that we use to treat agitation can uh, have negative effects on the patients and our employees. You know, you can affect employee morale, retention rate, engagement with our patients by the different things that we have to address and the different modalities we use to try to treat our patients. Miner and colleagues showed that 70% of all the medications we use to treat agitation are intramuscular injections. That obviously increases the risk for needle stick injuries, you know, and then you're doing some follow-up with those patients with post-exposures and then exposing our employees to possible medications that may have additional risk to the employee on top of already having the injury with a needle stick. Holman and colleagues showed that two-thirds of all patient assaults on staff occurred during procedures to restrain a patient. So again, almost 
<laughs> those injuries are occurring during this time of trying to restrain these patients, and, and a lot of this is due to that agitation. Restraints also can have traumatizing effects on the patients as well. They show, uh, in Weiss's paper and colleagues, they show a 36% increase in the length of stay when restraints are used. It also sets up the patients to be a little more combative as they are restrained against their will. They're already feeling agitated. And again, in our institution, one of the things we really like to do is try to build that trust. You get the patients involved in their care, have them part of the decision-making instead of doing things against their will. And a number of these patients tend to be our frequent flyers, our high-frequency patients, so in those high-frequency patients, they've known what these treatment modalities are like. And one of the other side effects that we'll get into and talk about is that 70% of these IM injections are associated with excessive sedation. So none of these patients are used to being restrained against their will, giving a intramuscular injection, which may cause some pain at the injection site, and then being sedated to the point where they just go to sleep and wake up several hours later. So again, that, that has a lot of negative effects, not only on our employees, but also the patients as well. So now Dr. Downs will have you talk a little bit about the techniques and approaches to reduce and prevent acute patient agitation, if you will. Yeah, and I think that ties really well into what you were just saying about knowing your patient and what will help them. Because I think over the years, from what I've seen, what I've read, the focus of treating agitation has definitely changed. And previous years, many, many years ago, the focus was more about the staff and about protecting or creating a patient that is more compliant. And often that did mean that you were sedating the patient. And we have moved away from that. We understand better, like you said, Dr. Kasava, that we are looking to engage the patient so that we can have best outcomes for both us and the patient. And that means that they have to understand their illness. They have to understand what treatment they're getting and why. And we can't really do that well when they are so sedated, they can't participate in their care. And so part of that whole treatment plan would be looking at your patient as a whole and, and trying to really use trauma-informed care and patient-centered care. That plays very much into how we can prevent agitation. So take, for example, a patient who does have a history of abuse, whether uh, that may be physical, sexual, et cetera, abuse in some way. And that patient is now in a setting where they're held in our psychiatric unit against their will. And, you know, they can't use their phone like they would like. They can't leave. And they don't have access to the things that comfort them. And, of course, they're more just uncomfortable around certain individuals that may remind them of their assault. And if you know nothing about that, about the patient and about their experience, then how can we really help them? And aren't we more likely to kind of trigger a lot of those memories and create more agitation episodes? The answer is absolutely yes. We see that happening all the time. And so we, um, something that I found really helpful for our unit and something that our whole hospital started doing is using trauma-informed care. We're still working on it. Um, it's still an ongoing project, but we do like to upfront ask the patient about their history as much as they can provide, or maybe that means a chart review. And asking them, as they, especially as they come onto our psych unit, what would help you calm down? And what are things that you find comforting? We do have like a quiet room. So if you're working in a setting where you don't have some of these things, it's great to bring in occupational therapy and uh, physical therapy and all of those 
disciplines that you guys can collaborate with. That's really what helped us do a lot of our initiatives. And so we have a quiet room. We ha- we do have a restraint room, but we try to use that in the worst case scenario. We're trying to prevent them from getting there. And it's also asking them early on, what medications have you found helpful? And ordering those early. So making sure they're available as needed medications for the patient so that when, if and when they get in a situation where they're feeling a little out of control, you can offer, you or the nurse, whoever is available, can offer that medication prior to them feeling so out of control that they need those emergent medications, those meds that are IM or IV. And um, at that point, the patient is held against their will. And it is so traumatizing for them. We're, we are often re-traumatizing them. And that's definitely not where we want to go because um, it does make the outcomes for the patient way worse. So looking at your patient as a whole, I think, is our first step. And then having some of those constructs in place to where we can help them in a multimodal way, whether that is medications, whether it's therapy, whether it's a quiet room, whether it's a sensory uh, type of play or uh, situation, whether it's a family member they find helpful to come visit them, things of that nature. I think it's an approach that it's, it's an approach that takes many different things to get the patient to where they need to be to prevent them from getting agitated. So in moving forward and talking more about medications, what are some options that you've used, Dr. Kasava, at your hospital to uh, treat agitation and, and maybe focusing a bit on what type of agitation they have and the severity of that? Certainly, we can discuss that. You know, our primary goal, obviously, is prevention. Anytime that you can use verbal de-escalation strategies to help uh, de-escalate the situation, help get the patient uh, under control and feeling more calm is always the preferred method. Start early, again, prevent it from getting to the point where they're at severe agitation. There's some different methods for assessing where patients may fall in agitation. Some of these are more clinically based. Some of these are more study based. You know, different folks will use different practices, whether you use a PEC scale, which is five questions out of the bigger PAN scale to talk to the excitatory component or an ACES scale, which is much like the Ramsey or RAS scale that takes you from marked agitation all the way down to unarousable and you scale that out. But again, most people will be able to just walk in and say a patient is agitated based on the assessment of the patient. So when they need to do that, they'll they'll determine whether the patient is either mild, moderate, or severe. And that can help us tailor which types of therapies we may use, whether we're going to use monotherapy, oral therapy, IM, or IV. Um, And all treatments, all prescription treatments should be tailored to your presumptive diagnosis when possible. And then you're also going to determine whether or not you're looking to treat possibly the underlying illness, or just treat a true acute agitation episode. And sometimes you have to get through the true acute agitation episode to determine if it's a psychiatric break or if it's just a true episode or possibly due to some other compounding factors such as uh, alcohol or other drugs. So a lot of times in mild to moderate agitation, oral monotherapy with like antipsychotics, and we'll get into talking about the first generation versus second generations uh, shortly, you know, for the antipsychotics, or your benzodiazepines can be used, or a combination of both of those. 
And a lot of the times, you know, it's important to know that the only approved combinations for oral therapy are Haldol and Lorazepam or Risperidol and Lorazepam. And then sometimes people will add in diphenhydramine to help prevent the EPS effects. And then if you're escalating up the pathway, you're getting to a moderate, moderate to severe type of patient, you know, IM monotherapy may be appropriate with your antipsychotics and or benzodiazepines or a combination of therapy if needed. And then sometimes when severe, if it's truly, truly severe, IV antipsychotics or your benzodiazepines may be your preferred method of treatment. As mentioned, you know, we look at the first generation antipsychotics or second generation antipsychotics in your, your oral therapy. These tend to take a bit longer. So the quickest one out there, which you may or may not have on formulary based on your institution, would be like a centipine or saffris, which is about 15 minutes for an onset. But the rest of them are about one to two hours, you know, where if you have a patient who's truly acutely agitated, you know, that may be a long time for waiting for an effect to happen on that. People may look at the first generation antipsychotics and use haloperidol. Onset's about 30 minutes with that. Some of the big things with that is you, you want to make sure you're assessing, you know, what, what's going to be appropriate for you. The benzodiazepines, uh, onset's about 20 to 30 minutes. So a lot of times that that's quicker and, and maybe why you will go with some form of combination with Haldol and Lorazepam or Risperidol and Lorazepam to help treat the underlying causes as well as the acute agitation episode that are that is out there. Parenteral medications can become a little bit of an issue. Typically in most behavioral health units or psych units, there is not IV lines accessible or available. So, you know, those become options that you do not have. So you tend to lean towards some of the IM-based injections. And uh, some things there, again, you got your first generation antipsychotics with haloperidol, uh, droperidol. You got your second generation IM and antipsychotics, olanzapine, zeprazidone, and then some of the different uh, IV antipsychotics would be like olanzapine available for that. A lot of people may or may not do that. Benzodiazepines, you know, IM, you can give either lorazepam or midazolam, uh, lorazepam being the preferred agent generally most of the time. And then IV, you can also give midazolam. The one that probably is the most common one we think of and talk about, you know, as people will say, B52, your combination of intramuscular haloperidol, diphenhydramine, and lorazepam, preferred to be given in one syringe instead of giving multiple shots. This has consistently been given over the years for severe agitation. I think it's generally based on a belief that it is more effective than other options, but numerous studies have shown that it does not have superior efficacy or safety out there. So it's something to know and understand. And then, you know, we'll be talking about in a little bit, there's a newer agent now that can be given sublingually. And anything you'd like to add to that, Dr. Downs? I think you covered most of it. Um, And yeah, I just totally agree about the three-drug combination of Benadryl, Ativan, Haldol. We we have fought that fight here at my hospital, and um, we're still fighting it in some settings. And there is a belief that it is more efficacious, but time and time again, even in our local hospital, I've seen that those outcomes definitely aren't necessarily better. We often are redosing pretty quickly after 
and uh, seeing a lot of sedation, as you mentioned, that happens quite a bit with uh, any combination, but also just with IM medications. And it does lead to reduced time to get them to where they need, or increased time, excuse me, to getting them, whether that's admitted or discharged, or for them to participate in care. The other medication that I see kind of used a lot recently in our setting, at least, has been Thorazine or Chlorpromazine. And if you look at how it works, it's a low-potency antipsychotic first generation. So when I talk to my providers about that, I kind of remind them that while it does really help like it makes patients sleepy for sure. Maybe one of the reasons some folks like the medication or think it's working, it really doesn't seem to work when you're thinking about if you know your patient is psychotic or dealing with psychosis and you're wanting to treat that underlying issue, that's not going to really be the most uh, bang for your buck. You're, you want to use a more potent medication like haloperidol or flufenazine. And honestly, it's associated with so much more side effects like hypotension, clinically significant hypotension and sedation that it does limit a patient um, being able to respond to treatment and also respond to you when you're trying to assess them and engage them in treatment. So I often can advocate that we utilize more evidence-based medications, also remembering that Thorazine is a third-line option and trying to, again, use those medications early on, trying to use POs when they are initially agitated, and then and remembering that, that it could work. Yes, it takes a little longer, but it could help them prolong to them to get to a state of being moderately or severely agitated. So those are the only things I would add there. Oh, actually, and I'll just add one other point because I kind of forgot about it and it's seemed to grow a little bit. I think during the pandemic, we've seen a little bit more of it. The use of IM or IV ketamine has been started to be used. It is part of some consensus guidelines from 2018. So it is out there. And then the use of uh, IV dexmedetomidine is also out there. And again, that's more just, as you said, not so much treating the underlying illness, but just uh, basically causing some sedation to get those patients under control. And would you like to talk about the main side effects and drug interactions that you see with the different agents available for treatment of agitation? Sure, sure. Some of them we have talked about, you know, we're going to always be concerned about sedation. And as we talk about sedation, it's good to, because to kind of know that we're not necessarily talking about the point of cardiorespiratory failure sedation or patient not being able to protect their airway, but sometimes it's just uh, too sedated to participate or too sedated to um, have any sort of interaction. And I definitely have seen that happen with some of our medications. Some level of sedation is likely to be expected just because when a, fo- when a person is agitated and now we are helping them calm down, often they haven't slept or they are in that heightened fight or flight response. And so it is going to be normal to see some level of calming down and even sleeping after giving medication. So it's important to just monitor them at different places, monitor differently, whether that's an ICU or hospital floor. There are different skills you can use to monitor for that for sedation, but whatever it is you use, you're looking for just a minimal sedation to be clinically appropriate. If they are so sleepy that they can't participate, you'll want to reevaluate whether that medication is the right medication for your patient and probably try something different or reduce the number of medications that they got if it was a combination. The other thing to think about is EPS, especially if you're giving a first-generation medication. 
the incidence of EPS is definitely higher with those. And we do try to protect for that when you give it with something like Benadryl being anticholinergic. It helps prevent the things like acute dystonia or things like that. Even akathisia can be seen. So you'll want to just monitor for that. And if at all, if your patient is at risk, so for example, they've had this documented happen to them before, or they are just hit that, they're in that target group that has the high risk factors, such as young African-American males. So that population tends to have more risk of having acute dystonia. Uh, that patient population, you might consider being more proactive about choosing maybe a second-generation medication or giving your Haldol or glufenazine with Ativan or Benadryl to help prevent that. The other thing to really look out for would be respiratory depression, which we mentioned is not, not a very common thing that will happen, but it certainly can, especially if you're giving stacked CNS depressants or they're getting Ativan or some sort of benzodiazepine along with the medication that they got for agitation or strictly a benzodiazepine from agitation, any of these medications certainly can cause some severe sedation and respiratory depression. So those are the main things. Sometimes we'll see EKG changes. Keeping in mind, of course, we don't always have a baseline EKG, especially when you're dealing with a very acute situation like an emergency situation in your emergency department. You may not have had a chance to get an EKG, but if at all possible to get them on telemetry or get that started, it's always a good idea. Although I will say that many of our medications that we fear EKG changes with, the clinical significance is not exactly all that high. There's a very low actual incidence of causing torsades, which is what we would be concerned about with a QT prolongation. But it's still something to monitor for. We always want to be careful. Anticholinergic side effects come with the territory as well. So remember, again, we're giving medications such as Benadryl in our combination. These things, especially Benadryl, is highly anticholinergic. And we talked a little bit about Thorazine and how it's very anticholinergic. And while initially you may not think that's a huge issue, um, and I forgot to mention olanzapine, which is anticholinergic as well, which comes in an IM and an orally disintegrating tablet, often used for agitation. So these medications you'll just be extra careful with because they do cause acute changes in, uh, it could cause changes in, in cause confusion, cause changes in uh, bowel movements and other issues that actually could, in dizziness, that could lead to some clinically pertinent side effects for our patients. So those are the major side effects I would be concerned with and monitor for. There are some drug interactions too, and so those mainly are our medications that are synergistic in effect. So again, I kind of mentioned stacking CNS depressants. It happens quite often in our settings where we're just trying to treat our patient quickly. And so just remember that, be mindful of that. Synergistic effects with different classes of medications will happen as well. We're losing antipsychotics, benzodiazepines, other psychotropics, anxiolytics, and things like that together are going to increase your risk of the side effects I just mentioned. And then other metabolism. Metabolism issues, if your patient has renal or hepatic dysfunction, that goes without saying, most likely, as we're talking to an audience of pharmacists, but just to remember that. And uh, CYP enzymes, most of our drug interactions, though, with our antipsychotics and benzos generally are, are friendly in terms of CYP enzymes, but some of them are substrates for 3A4 or 2D6, like risperidone. So there could be some interactions there. But I guess 
thing I see the most is wanting to adjust around hepatic uh, metabolism or changes in hepatic metabolism. So those are the main kind of things I look out for. Um, anything to add there, Dr. Casaba, on, on side effects or monitoring? No, I, I would completely agree. And, and like you said, there's numerous studies have shown and, and lots of personal experience, you know, avoiding that over and, you know, helps our patients move along the treatment pathways much quicker. You can get them into group, you can get them into lessons and, and get them participating quicker. And, and again, building that trust with that patient is, is a huge thing for us. So again, we try to do things to help avoid that over sedation. And, you know, again, as everyone has battled with staffing and, and having enough people and enough beds to place people in, having proper throughput and improving that throughput by avoiding these combinations, avoiding these side effects also becomes a key point to really concentrate on. Wonderful. So how would you handle, or do you have any advice on how to handle agitation if it's more related to intoxication? Acute intoxication, definitely uh, one of the things you need to determine, you know, what type of intoxication is it is an alcohol intoxication or withdrawal symptoms? Is it stimulant intoxication? Is it a CNS depressant intoxication? So depending on that, we usually try to let things clear is the <laughs> easiest and path of least resistance for us to try to take care of the patient and then just provide palliative care or not palliative care, comfort care or patients to help manage those symptoms and uh, decrease the chances of agitation. But if it's uh, kind of known where it is, you know, that CNS depressant stacking or intoxication, you know, that's causing agitation, you know, it's generally we recommend an antipsychotic uh, monotherapy, you know, second generation preferably. If it's an alcohol intoxication or withdrawal or stimulant intoxication, then you can look at doing uh, benzodiazepine monotherapy. It's tough as people, you know, don't want to keep adding more narcotics or more controlled substances to patients uh, already acutely intoxicated. So sometimes other agents are looked at and, and thought of using, such as gabapentin, hydroxyzine, or possibly some of our agents for alcohol withdrawal, where we use an IV Presidex um, to help with those patients. Any things that you guys commonly do to manage your acutely intoxicated patients, Dr. Dow? Yeah, we kind of follow that same approach and just thinking about, do we need to let the patient sort of metabolize whatever substance they're currently intoxicated with and just see if they improve? Often with things like stimulants, we don't have a whole lot of options for evidence-based treatment for that. And, you know, if you even look at assessing things like stimulant withdrawal to kind of guide your treatment, there there isn't too much out there. So we are just sort of watching their agitation level and treating with, with the PRNs you talked about, gabapentin, hydroxazine, benzos if needed. I think that's kind of the approach I've seen in our addictions, addiction psychiatry team. And the other things, of course, we do thankfully have medications for when it comes to opioid and um, alcohol withdrawal. And so we just use our institutional protocols for that. Thank you. Yeah. So... At this point, we'll look at talking about uh, what are some of the novel ways to treat agitation since uh, many interventions may not work. Again, some of these patients are, are high frequency or frequent flyer patients. They may not be suitable options due to allergies or if they've had a previous non-response. And then, of course, something that we all deal with as pharmacists, drug shortages may affect uh, how and what we reach for. 
So at this time, we'll talk about Igalmi, which is a sublingual version of dexmedetomidine, which again is commonly known in the IV formulation as Presidex. This is a sublingual film that is uh, used to treat anywhere from mild to severe agitation in patients with bipolar 1 or 2 disorders and schizophrenia. One of the things I always like to point out in our institution, we tend to be a little more open in adding products to our areas that treat the psych, so for our behavioral health unit, as we firmly believe that having multiple tools in the toolbox is kind of the best way of helping to treat these because we know not one product works perfect for any one patient. So when we looked at Agami, some of the things we really liked, you know, because again, we tried to build that patient advocacy, is that it is sublingual. It's non-invasive. So you are not given an injection. You can either give it sublingual or buccally in there. It is a mucoadhesive film, so it is designed so it absolutely cannot be spit out. So once it's in the mouth, it's it's not coming out. They can't cheek it. They can't gum it. So they are going to get the medication. It dissolves very quickly and crosses into the oral mucosa and across the blood-brain barrier in five to 10 minutes. Has a little bit of a mint flavor, so the patient does know it's there. And one of the big things from a pharmacy perspective, which we liked and thought was great, is that it's not a controlled substance. So you don't get into any special storage, whether you have Pixis or OmniCell machines. There's not waste documentation that you have to go through with all of the double documentation required for narcotics, not double nurse sign-offs and all the other things that get associated with a controlled substance. So again, we were looking at this and uh, looked at how it works. So agalmi reduces norepinephrine release, which is one of the key mediators in agitation. So it's important to understand that agalmi is going to treat the symptoms of agitation. It is not going to treat your underlying illness. So if you are a bipolar 1 or 2 disorder patient or a schizophrenic patient or a schizoaffective patient, that's not going to treat that underlying disease state but it's going to take care of the agitation. And as I mentioned, a lot of times in our EDs, you know, when we're assessing those patients, it's important to find out, is this truly just a acute agitation episode or is this a psychotic break that is causing an acute agitation episode? Or is it, as we just kind of talked about, some type of uh, acute intoxication that may be leading to that? One of the things that we found with our use of Igami is that we can rapidly see if this is truly just acute episode of agitation and that will let us know, did we properly treat the patient? Within two hours, we can kind of really do a nice assessment to understand, you know, was it truly just acute agitation and now the patient's safe to be discharged home and continue their current therapy? Or is this patient having some type of psychiatric break that will require them to uh, spend some time on our behavioral health unit? Another big thing, again, with that first point of being non-invasive that we like to talk about in engaging our patients is that I always like to point out just because a patient is agitated does not mean they're not thinking. So one of the things that came up and we always considered and looked at when we were first bringing in Igalmi was if you're going to try to administer a drug or have a patient self-administer a drug sublingually or buccally, you know, would that cause an issue in an agitated patient? What we have found is that because these patients are high-frequency patients or frequent flyers, we find that you know, they are very familiar with the injections that they've had before. And 
uh, as we've seen here, it helps us change the narrative. We've now asked the patient, you know, hey, we have this newer medication. It's given in a sublingual or buccal formulation. So we explain that it goes, you know, between the cheek and gum or under your tongue. So that way, patient understands how it's used. Uh, we'll explain it as either some patients who already are on Suboxone will know. So you say, much like you take a Suboxone strip, or if they've never been on that in their past medical history, you know, you can ask them if they've tried like a Listerine strip to say, you know, much like you would put a Listerine strip in your mouth, you can administer this medication. It's been shown to be effective in helping to reduce agitation. And what we found is that very quickly, the patients kind of just stop and agree to try it. And we found that that also helps us change the narrative from you've done this to me, you held me down, you gave me meds when I didn't want them, you restrained me when I wanted to be free. As Dr. Downs pointed out, they don't get their phone anymore. They don't get these things as they get up on these behavioral health units that they're finding comforting and all that stuff. So this is helping us change that narrative to now we're having discussions with the patients and we were part of discussion to add this medication. I had the ability to decide how I would be treated. And that helps us build that trust level with our patients and helps us start taking that, that first steps to the path of getting our patients through our system and into groups and into treatment uh, pathways to help expedite them, whether it's, you know, getting them out of the ED faster and up to the psych unit, getting them through their groups when they're in their psych unit and, and their lessons to help them progress to being discharged in a more timely manner, which, you know, helps reduce stress on the whole system. So again, Agalami works when we looked at it by reducing norepinephrine, which is your fight or flight. So by decreasing that, it decreases the hyperarousal states and increased agitation states. There's a couple different doses that you can utilize. The most common doses are 180 micrograms as a initial treatment for moderate to severe agitation, or 120 micrograms for moderate, mild to moderate agitation. You can do follow-up doses with these medications. Currently, it is a medication that absolutely has to be administered in a healthcare institution under you know, direct supervision of the healthcare provider. We've had some of our healthcare providers, our nurses, assist the patients in, in getting the medication in. Some people have a little difficulty in possibly holding their lip out to put it in buccally or, you know, getting it under the tongue. So we'll use some forceps to drop them in. And again, you know, you're, you're concerned with, will this be an attack episode? But again, by asking the patients, we find that we're building that trust in their being very willing to try a new medication, something different, and not have the, uh, you know, sequelae that come with the uh, old medications that they're used to, the held down and given a shot. Point I made earlier was that it is a mucoadhesive strip, so it is very important to know and understand that it will stick to anything that is moist. So if your patient's hands are hot and sweaty from being acutely agitated, we have our patients wash their hands, dry them off really well. If they still seem to be a little moist, we will offer the patient a set of gloves to be able to administer it because the strip will stick to anything that is moist. And once it sticks, it becomes very difficult or, or almost impossible to remove. Obviously, if it gets in the mouth, it is not coming out. So again, those are some of the different mechanisms we use 
to do that. And again, we've used several hundred doses in between our ED and our psych units to help these patients. And we do set them up once they get up to a psych unit with generally a PRN order for a repeat dose if they're ever needed. You know, and usually it's not till several days later that a patient may need this. And we've actually had patients come up to the nurse's desk and ask for it and say, hey, I, can I have that medication that I had in the ED that helped me with my agitation? I'm feeling agitated again. And uh, they will receive the medication because we generally set them up with a PRN order. And then we've had patients take the medication and go right into group and be an active participant in their group. So, you know, again, we're not seeing quite the agit or uh, excuse me, the excessive sedation that we see with some of the older agents that we have utilized in our care of our patients. So we've been very happy with how quick it works. You will see effects, you know, substantial effects in, in about 20 minutes. We do a lot of things from the standpoint of ensuring safety of our patient. Being a newer medication, we do follow it a little closely. And uh, based on the side effect profile, which we'll talk about in a little bit, we do monitor our patients for a two-hour period, basically every 30 to 45 minutes for about two hours to ensure safety. Um, as I mentioned, it turns off that norepinephrine. So when you turn off that fight or flight mechanism, you will see drops in blood pressure. So some things you have to consider when deciding whether or not to use agalami is if the patient has a soft blood pressure, this may not be your most appropriate agent um, as it will cause drops in blood pressure. Again, turning off that fight or flight, you will see vasodilation, you know, you'll see decrease in, in heart rate. We've not seen anything to be clinically significant where we had to treat the patient, but you will definitely have drops in blood pressure and in their heart rate. So definitely something we monitor for about two hour period. One of the other side effects that I was concerned with when initially evaluating the product and bringing it in was orthostatic hypotension. If you think about how an acutely agitated patient is, you're afraid that they're going to pop up very quickly, you know, and if they pop up too quickly and cause orthostasis, you know, was that going to cause falls? Uh, we've had the medication here and active in our formulary for a little over a year now or about a year now. And, uh, you know, knock on wood. We've not had any patients fall, but we do follow all patients for 24 hours post a dose to ensure that we're not seeing falls in those patients. So again, something to know and understand that it can cause orthostasis. So we do talk to our patients when they're calmer about, you know, make sure you sit on the side of the bed before you decide to get up and stand up or stand up slowly where you have a hold of something. But again, overall, we have not seen patients fall with this. <laughs> Some of the other things that we considered when we were doing our formulary review was the possibility that they talk about with QT prolongation when we dug into the studies and its maximal dose given the maximum times per day you only increase the QT interval by 11 milliseconds which is not basically clinically significant unless they have other medications that may be on board so generally we tell the providers, our ED providers, when we're training them and our site providers that, you know, if a patient comes in on Ticacin, this may not be your agent to assess or, or think about. But again, the QT prolongation that's listed in the package insert is a one that does not show to be clinically significant at this point in time. 
other things I always tell patients or our providers, I should say, is that if the patient's already at the point of throwing objects, moving stuff, furniture around, being super aggressive, this may not be your treatment option as well. So again, you got to do what's right. And again, protect our patients, protect our providers, protect our nurses, protect all of our healthcare workers. So again, if you have the right patient um, somewhere, you know, again, if you can catch them between mild and moderate and prevent them from escalating up, that's great. If you're getting them in the ED where they're already moderate to severe, you know, going with a little higher dose to help bring that down quicker has been shown to be very effective for us in helping us move through the healthcare system and be able to treat our patients. Dr. Downs, anything that you would like to add or, you know, what cons or, you know, things that you guys thought of when and looking at the newest agent, Agami? Yeah, thank you so much for sharing your experience. And it's really nice to hear firsthand experience on a newer medication. And I think some of the things I've heard and have questions about are more about the administration of the medication, but you may have sort of already answered this and people have been asking, how long does it take to typically for that film to dissolve? Uh, the film dissolves in a couple seconds, uh, as I stated. It's kind of like if you've ever had a Listerine strip, that's the best way of explaining it. A little bit of a minty flavor in there, a little bit of a little gummy feeling in there. But once it's in, there is no cheeking it, no gumming it, and it is dissolved very quickly within just a couple seconds. So it, it is acting and getting into the patient's bloodstream very quickly, like I say, and crossing that blood-brain barrier in five to ten minutes to get nice maximal or nice considerable effects at about a 20-minute mark. Well, that's great to hear that it it takes only about 20 minutes or so to start working. And it sounds like you have the nurses generally around to make sure it's dissolved or that it, you know, doesn't necessarily need a lot of monitoring, it sounds like, but that it, would you say you usually use the nurses to make sure that the patient is using it correctly before they walk away? Yeah, yeah. So we, we definitely have our, our healthcare providers, our nurses in the rooms. Uh, as I stated, sometimes they will assist the patient in uh, getting that strip into the appropriate location, whether buccally or sublingually, you know, making sure that they know if you give it for sublingually, you can't eat or drink for 15 minutes. And one of the things, you know, with based on how the medication works and what it does may cause your mouth to be a little dry. So, you know, 15 minutes can be a long time, but if you give it buccally, you can't eat or drink for an hour. So that's something to know and understand. Uh, as like I said, it does cause a little gummy feeling in your mouth and, you know, can cause a little bit of dry mouth. So they are there evaluating that, making sure the patient isn't trying to, you know, wash anything out by drinking an excessive amount of water, you know, that they wait at least that 15 minutes. And then in our institution, again, being a new medication that's out there and, and doing our process and due diligence and following it up for, you know, our six-month period to ensure we're not having issues with it, we've had our nurses do monitoring, as I said, at about a 30 or 45-minute interval for a two-hour period to ensure that there is no clinically significant drops in blood pressure that would require any uh, activity, no, no patients getting up and falling. And then also to watch, you know, like I say, the somnolence, you know, in the studies, there was about 23% of the patients showed somnolence, which when you look at their definition of somnolence, it, it did include like sluggishness or patients being a little slow to react. 
again, if you turn off the fight or flight mechanism, patients will calm down. And as I always state with folks that, you know, depending on how long they were agitated before they got to the ED, you know, it's not like, oh, I'm feeling agitated, uh, starting to feel agitated, let me run to the ED. Usually they're at a point where they're either being escorted to the ED, brought by a family member to the ED, or law enforcement. So generally they've been at a very hyper aroused agitated state for some time and if you give them an agent that ends up calming them down and making them feel better at some point they are going to be kind of exhausted and and will show signs of being a little bit tired but the nice thing from their studies they had no patients that ended up being unresponsive or unarousable just simply walking in the room and talking to the patients so again they may be to the point where they're kind of exhausted and finally going to sleep, but it's not been shown to be just this excessive sedation that we've seen with some of the different agents that we've used commonly in the past. So it was very nice to see something that works fairly quickly, limiting the side effects. They're not nothing, but limiting the side effects to be what we would consider be very tolerable that, you know, the patient's calm and relaxed and sleeping and if you need to talk to them, you can go in and assess them. And again, that helps with throughput and or getting to the patients to the point of discharge. That's great. I think the last thing I was just curious about, do you guys have any sort of decision support for the providers or on when to use this medication or have we just, have y'all just educated them on who would be a good candidate? We've done lots of education on who would be a good candidate and, and where to go with uh, dosing in in the institution, there is a lot of breakdown for the dosing based on whether or not there's hepatic impairment. Again, uh, if you have hepatic impairment, you're generally starting your your starting doses cut in half already. So you would give them half of a strip. Um, they do come in a little foil pouch being a non-controlled substance, you know, that does allow you to kind of hang on to that other second half of a strip and not worry about so much in medication hanging out in a patient drawer where if you had a narcotic that would or a controlled substance that would never be appropriate. So we went over the different types of dosing, you know, whether it's mild, moderate or moderate severe and where to start the dosing. If they're elderly, you can cut the dose in half. If they have hepatic dysfunction, you can cut the uh, dose in half. And, and, and again, you know, if it's mild to moderate uh, hepatic impairment, you should be starting at 60 micrograms. And if it's severe agitation with a severe hepatic impairment, cutting it down to 90. Um, you can do repeat doses at two-hour intervals. So you would uh, give a half a dose. So if you started with the 180, you give a 90. If you fall into some of these hepatic ones, if you give a 60, you would repeat with a 60. And you can give up to three doses is what's been studied. They have not studied the medication more than 24 hours of use. So again, there's no recommendations on continuing it post that. So it is really, truly a PRN to address the acute agitation episode if you are not getting there after you know four hours or two doses three doses then you may need to consider a different agent on there so we go through and train those we do have order sets that are built out there and you know with its indications being for bipolar one and two disorder patients and or schizophrenic patients you know we kind of built that into the order set some institutions may decide to either restrict it 
for only their psych unit, and that's where we we actually started ours. We had it strictly restrict uh, strictly restricted into the psych unit and available to our psych physicians, and did direct education to them and the nurses of what it is, what it's for, where to use it. You know. Who who's the appropriate patient. Uh, we had it very quickly and organically grow into our ED where we had a night where we have the very common overcrowding in our ED. We had patients in hallway beds and we had two folks that ended up kind of in front of the nurse's station who were feeding off each other and their agitation was making each other even more agitated. So psych was consulted to come down and address the patients. They asked us for the medication. You know, we let them know that it wasn't up there, but we ran it up immediately. They administered the doses where it just happened to be right in front of the whole nurse's station and where all the physicians were. And they got to see it work very quickly and effectively in these two very agitated patients who ended up being uh, able to be treated and assessed and taken care of. And uh, that started the train going of uh, all my ED physicians going, well, why don't we have this? Why why isn't this available to us? And, and you know, we went through the education with them to say, hey, the indication is for mild to severe agitation in our bipolar one and two disorder or schizophrenic patients. So that's why it was kind of restricted to psych in the beginning. Uh, we have that built into our order sets and then the order sets to help them determine what's an appropriate dose based on whether it's mild to moderate or moderate to severe agitation and then some of the confounding factors, whether or not they're over 65 or if they have mild to moderate renal dysfunction or severe renal dysfunction. Sounds like a very promising drug. Well, if there, do you have anything else to add before we wrap up? Oh, not at this time. I'd be happy to help with any questions if anyone ever has them. <laughs> I might be one of those people. So thank you so much for that. <laughs> and that is all the time we have today. I want to thank Dr. Kasava for joining me. And thank you so much for tuning in, everyone, to this session of Engaging the Experts. Check out the initiative website on elearning.ashp.org. We hope you've enjoyed today's conversation. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for the ASHP Advantage podcast, Engaging the Experts. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time for more expert perspectives on ASHP Official.